HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Kasdan, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. Have you ever wondered how a food delivery business gets going? All the logistics and the headaches of matching people to farmers and to food and to homes. Our next guest, Aaron Baumgartner, is the CEO and founder of The Family Dinner. An assistant director of an urban studies lab at MIT, she left her job after a drink with her husband in a local bar made her believe that her scribbled on the cocktail napkin idea was worth betting on. Let's have a listen to Erin. Erin, before we get into you, give me a short little description for people who don't know it of the project. Sure. So Family Dinner is a local farmer's market delivery service. Every week we source local meat, fish, cheese, produce, and grains, and deliver them directly to our customers' doors. But in the back end, we're trying to use data and predictive analytics to eliminate waste in the food supply chain and shorten and strengthen the local food ecosystem. I think the concept of local food has really entered the zeitgeist recently. People talk about it a lot. But many people see it as like this precious, rarefied thing, right? This, these jokes about, do you know your chicken's name before you eat it? And it did it have a nice back massage and all that stuff. That's cute and whatever. But I think that the important thing to note is that there really is something for everyone in the story of local food. Whether you are an avid supporter of the rights of animals or workers or the environment, or you really care about the use of pesticides or antibiotics in your food, or you're really just interested in super delicious food, there's something for you in understanding and exploring the story of local food. And so I think it is a lot broader and a lot more enveloping than maybe people think. I would agree with that. It has come out of the realm of the precious. So 
Do you do any prepared foods or is it all grocery shopping? When we deliver to you, it looks like you went to a variety of farms and picked out the freshest produce and a pound of salmon and all the different things that you could get. And we give you recipe ideas as to how to use the ingredients and oftentimes how to reuse them so you're not wasting things in your own home. We do offer some prepared items from time to time from local vendors, things such as mac and cheese or pierogi or empanadas, because we know that people are super busy and that kind of convenience is really important. And how big is your reach? How far do you go? How many people do you serve? Sure. So we do about 600 deliveries a week in Massachusetts, anywhere in the 495 belt. A couple of years ago, we expanded to Portland, Maine as well, and started a whole new organization up there, working with a whole new network of farms to serve the folks of Portland, Maine and Seacoast, New Hampshire. It was really interesting to test the model and find out, could we take the suite of technologies that we had created and the softwares that we had created and move them to a new geography? Is the system transferable? And it's exciting to see that, yes, it is. And it's exciting to watch the new operation in Portland be thriving. Now, a few years ago and continuing, I started hearing about a lot of different companies that were essentially trying to optimize the farmer to you. What makes yours special? Very recently, there's been a big boon in the idea of supporting. It's always been around the idea of supporting local, but people are talking about it more and more. But with a lot of food delivery systems, they say that everything's local, but their headquarters are either in New Jersey or California. And for folks in Massachusetts, that doesn't really feel local to me. Oftentimes when I've seen these deliveries as well, they come in miles and miles of packaging, things that either you have to find a way to recycle or things that aren't recyclable, such as styrofoam or the ice packs. We deliver to you in a way that truly supports the local food ecosystem. We work with about 120 different local farmers, producers, growers, and makers, and we deliver to your home in a bag that is reusable, that we take it back, we clean and sanitize, and with ice packs, not with miles and miles of packaging. So that way we're eliminating the packaging, we're delivering directly to you, and eliminating waste as we go. And how often do you deliver? If I were a customer of yours, how often would you come to my house? I would likely come once a week, but we do deliveries two days a week. So we deliver to our customers on Saturdays or Tuesdays. Mostly we deliver to people's homes, but some people want it delivered to their office because they find that more convenient. But the stuff has ice packs in it. So if you deliver to my home and I'm at the dry cleaners or whatever, I can rest assured that the salmon isn't going to start to cook. Sure. Yes. A lot of customers, particularly in the summer, prefer to leave a cooler out as well for that secondary mm -hmm. level of assurance that you're talking about. So you don't have half-cooked salmon when you're coming back from the dry cleaner. How did this become your thing to do? Where did this start? Sure. So prior to starting Family Dinner, I worked at MIT for 12 years, most recently in the Department of Urban Studies and Planning. And there I worked in a lab that was using data analytics to understand sticky and complex urban problems, problems like traffic and trash. And we started to think about ways in which you could use those same approaches, those same methodologies to attack and improve the food supply chain. And the national food supply chain we know is incredibly wasteful, inefficient, and it faces other issues. We started to think, could we use these same things on the food supply chain? And my husband and I started chirping in each other's ears about this idea and trying to find ways to iterate and get it started. And we did all this at a sports bar in Cambridge, like writing ideas <laughs> on the back of napkins and dreaming about the day that we might do this. And finally, one day it was like, let's just try. Let's just launch. And so we got seven friends to say, 
yes. And the question we asked was like, could we bring you your groceries every week? And our friends thought we were nuts. Like, what are you talking about? Like, you both have full-time jobs. What are you doing here? But they said yes. And that yes allowed us to start the whole thing and to launch and make a million mistakes and be insanely inefficient, but then iterate and iterate and find new ways and improve and make it streamlined. And so over time, it grew and grew. And all of a sudden, it wasn't just our friends and family. It was folks we'd never heard of. And we moved into a shared kitchen space. And the company just kept growing and growing. It's been quite the ride from the start at Trina's Starlight Lounge in Cambridge, but that's how it all began. Well, I like the idea of you and all the other would-be tech bros starting it over a margarita at like, Trina's. I like yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> it was beer and wings. It was just like the craziest thing. Like, we could totally do this. We should do this. We should not do this. <laughs> but then let's do it anyway. And it's one of those things that people tell you you're nuts. And it's like, abs- you're 100% correct. We must be nuts to be doing this. It, well, I think you're nuts because it's essentially regularized schlepping, yeah. you know? <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> and how do you get paid? How do they get paid? How did you find the farmers? Sure. Family Dinner operates on an e-commerce subscription model. So customers are in... Right. Break that down for me. Sure. E-commerce subscription model. Sure. Okay. So we operate entirely online. We don't have a brick and mortar. And customers are subscribed, in theory, to a weekly delivery, but it's very easy for them to skip any weeks they want. We could set it up that you receive a delivery bi-weekly or monthly. You could skip three months if you're traveling for the summer. We want it to be incredibly flexible for people in that way. But in theory, everybody is in for that week unless they opt out. And so orders process on Monday mornings every week. And so on Monday morning, very early, I wake up and see this is the number of orders I have. We have custom coded software that allows us to break those orders down by share type, omnivore, pescatarian, paleo, vegetarian, et cetera, and share size. And through that, the order sheet that we have created that integrates with this software, we're able to see this is how many pounds of meat we need. This is how many varieties. And then we spend the week reaching out to different farmers to find out, well, what do you have? What's fresh this week? How could we fit that in? And how do we curate a share? So that it kind of makes sense together. This bag shows up and you're like, oh, I could make scallops and fresh pasta and asparagus out of this. That's this week's share, for example. So people aren't going in and saying, yes, I'll take scallops. Yes, I'll take asparagus. You essentially, you curate and say, woohoo, we think this will work for you. Yes, and. Yes, and yes. So we operate on a model that we have shares, like a CSA, with the idea of you get what you get, but we allow people to be very flexible. We allow people to say, you, you can't have gluten, you don't like shellfish, you don't eat pork, you really don't like beets because you think they're gross or whatever. And we can accommodate all of those allergies and aversions for folks. But the primary thing that we have are these curated shares that we deliver that vary in size and type. Additionally, we've started to have all these add-ons that people can do that I think supplement the shares that they're receiving. So a bread of the week, a cheese of the week. Maybe you go through a lot of mushrooms or lettuce in your house or potatoes or cheese or eggs or bread, and you can add all of those things on. Maybe you're just a protein family and you want three pounds of fish every week and that's it. We can accommodate that as well. So Mm -hmm. as we've grown, we've given people more and more flexibility and more and more opportunities to personalize. To your second question about how we meet the farmers. It wasn't easy in the beginning. People were lovely to us, but we were walking up to different farms 
trying to introduce ourselves to people and saying, hi, maybe we need five pounds of this a week. Maybe we need seven pounds. And people are like kind of patting you on the shoulder, like, okay, kid, like, here you go. But let us know when you know. Yeah. Let us know when you're not just noise in our ear. But now at the scale that we're operating at, it's a much easier conversation to say, I need 2000 pounds of this. I need 2000 pounds of that. To the point that we work with farmers a season in advance to say to them, this year we needed 600 pounds of asparagus a week. Next year we're predicting it will be 800. And they can plant knowing in advance that they will have a market for that product. Mm. They can then have that financial security that the risk that they're taking in planting will be rewarded when we purchase directly from them. We also buy whole animals. So we buy whole cows, whole pigs that are then processed to our specifications. So we get the cuts that we want, which is also excellent for the farmer because we're eating nose to tail. We're using the whole animal, Mm -hmm. which is better for the farmer. It's better for the animal. It's better for the earth, et cetera. So we have a little bit more purchasing power, I guess, now than Mm -hmm. we did. We're a little more convincing. And so it's an easy conversation. And the last thing I'll say about it is that it's very important to us to support the work of the farmers and we never haggle on price. The price is the price. If it makes sense for this week, we will take it. We never say, if it's 800 pounds, how about the price is this? We don't engage in that at all. We don't think it's right. And do you pay them spot on, you know, right on the spigot, or does that come after you've gotten paid? So we get paid, the money from family dinner comes in weekly. So we, we process mm-hmm. our bills weekly. And it's actually mm-hmm. my mom who does paying all the bills. She made this Excellent. terrible mistake during the pandemic when we the company blew up. I mean, it just, it went crazy. She made the terrible mistake of asking me if I needed like, do you need any help? And I was like, no, 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 (laughs) no, no, no. I'm totally fine. You're fine. And then she said, no, do you need any help? And I was like, sure thing. Accounts payable, accounts receivable, payroll, customer emails. You can have it all. So it's, it's, we're truly, I think, putting the family in family dinner. (laughs) Dragging mom into it. Yeah. Well, I can believe that. Uh, Handed it over very quickly and, uh, and she's been doing great. She's demanding a company car, though, which I don't think is, uh, it's not in the cards. <laughs> you just never know. Maybe a truck. Yeah, yeah. Could have yeah a, truck. a company pickup. <laughs> I have one of those. So all of this comes to my door. It's kind of refrigerator fresh. What do I do with the nose and the tail of the <laughs> animals? What? Those we don't sell to, those we don't sell to customers. They're available if people want them. So we've told people, some people really like the offal. Some people like to feed those to do raw diets for their dogs, or some people like it as part of a different culinary opportunity. So we will sell them to people. And we also work with restaurants who are interested in doing, there's a restaurant in Maine that's going to be doing a delicious beef tongue pastrami that is like incredibly buttery and salty and delicious. So we find a home for all of it. One of the most important things about the model and how it works is that we order to meet exact demand. And the problem with food waste in restaurants and food waste in grocery stores is that really affects profitability. When our orders come in on Monday morning, let's say I know I need 300 pounds of salmon, I buy 302 in case one doesn't look good, in case the packaging is bad, in case there's human error. I order to meet exact demand so that when everything comes into family dinner from all the different farms into our warehouse, on a full to the brim... And on a packing day, when the whole team comes in, packs all the shares and delivers them, at the end of that packing day, the refrigerators are empty. There's almost nothing in there, inventory-wise. And so that is beneficial for us from a profitability and a margin standpoint, but also it really helps us meet our mission of not wasting food as we go. If there does happen to be extra, 
We donate it to local food banks, such as the Greater Boston Food Bank, the Chelsea Collaborative, the Woburn Food Bank, and any of the community fridges in Somerville and Arlington. Wow. And how do people find out about you? Me running my big mouth wherever I can. The most helpful thing to us has been word of mouth. We've done a lot of marketing experiments and run the data on cost of customer acquisition, et cetera, per marketing experiment. But the thing that really is the most valuable is the word of mouth. And we have the data to back that up. When you say to your best friend, you've got to try this thing. It's incredibly cool. There's a currency of trust there. There's a currency of trust that like my friend told me this thing. I trust my friend. I will give this a go. And we incentivize both people, our current customer and the person that they refer. And so we incentivize both of them. And so we found that to be really valuable. We also love to stand up in the community and talk about what we do, talk about the mission of our work and why it's different, and talk about the beliefs that we hold and the way that we try to show up in the community and the charitable work that we like to do. People are so lovely. Oh my God. Like little handwritten notes every time you dropped off a bag or like, hey, we made you some cookies. We get a lot of feedback from our customers and we take it incredibly seriously, especially when things go wrong. You forgot to send me eggs. My carton of milk showed up, whatever. We take that very, like we respond to people and we refund them almost aggressively because if something has shown up that isn't to snuff, something's wilted, there's freezer burn on your steak or something like that. We go overboard in refunding people because we want them to stay. It's very important that we keep those folks content and keep them wrapped up in what we're doing because it is a week to week. And so losing them is not just losing someone for that week. It's losing all of their future potential engagement and revenue, basically. So yeah, we hear I from am, people a lot. I am so with you on that. When I had my restaurants, I was constantly saying to the servers, look, make it right with them because we want them to tell us not to tell everyone else. Totally. Yep, um, exactly. Well, it leads into certain decisions about hiring. So people mm -hmm. say like, we pay our drivers 20 or $25 an hour. People say like, why don't you just use Uber drivers or whatever? Absolutely not. Our drivers have been with us for years and they refer their friends or their sisters or whomever. And I'm very proud of that because the driver is my only direct point of communication, my only direct link to the customer. And so if you get a family dinner share and you see the driver and you're like, wow, what's in the share this week? And they're like, I have no goddamn idea. Like, that's not great. Right. We need the person to take care of the food, to leave it in a certain place, to follow the instructions. Like we need there to be care. And if we want that, we have to show it. Right. And so that's really important. And it's exactly to your point. We want to hear about it directly versus them blasting all over the place and telling the mm -hmm. friends that family dinner is terrible and Aaron's the worst and the food is disgusting. <laughs> And we'll be back with Erin in a minute to hear more about who she is and why she built the family dinner. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. 
Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. And we are back with Erin. Well, you are fascinating to me, especially since I read your bio and I saw all of this French and fluency and French and nothing that I read said to me, oh, this woman is going to start a farm to table effectively yeah. <laughs> food delivery. So, so how, where did the food thing come from? Where did the French thing come from? <laughs> I, it's funny when I look at my career, it's almost anything but linear. Lots of weird little left turns that turned into a tangled ball of yarn. I studied French literature. I have a master's in, in French literature. I lived and worked in France for many years. My first work at MIT was engaging in scientific exchanges between French companies, the French government, and MIT, and then transitioned to a different department at MIT, and now here I am. Uh, as a kid, I worked on local farms, and I, wor I worked in our local pizza shop. So I was always really interested in food, primarily from the eating side of it. And <laughs> I think the earliest time that I started thinking about the dissonance in the food system was when I would work in the summers in college, I would work at an organic family farm during the day, all muddy and dirt and all the kinds of good stuff. And in the evening, I was a waitress at Applebee's. And so like the absolute dissonance between those two things was really shocking. Um, but food is not my background. We stumbled into this either creatively or stupidly or both, but it's been a, it's been a bit of a ride. Did you grow up in a food-centric family at all? Was your fabulously accomplished mother into <laughs> cooking and you sat there lapping it up? Or yeah, my, was your... my mother's an excellent cook. My mother's an excellent cook. And to this day, some of the dishes that she makes, I beg her for exactly twice a year. One is at Christmas and the other is on my birthday. I eat the same thing every year for my birthday. I have for decades at this point. Um, I, I want to know what, I wanna know what oh that is. Oh my God, it's chicken croquettes. <laughs> So it takes the poor woman, it takes her all day long. She <laughs> makes, she bakes a chicken, she rips it apart. She makes a bechamel. She shreds the chicken into the bechamel. Then she chills it, forms it into these croquettes and fries them lightly with a little sauce on the side and herbs. And it is absolutely divine. It's so good. But she made her own bread and like we always had a garden and we had dinner every single night together like whether you wanted to be there or not, <laughs> you were at the table or whether yeah. they wanted you there or not, you were at the table. Yeah. I, we had a small family, so it was, we spent a lot of time around that table together. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Topsfield, Massachusetts, which is on the North shore. And now I live in Boxford, off in the middle of nowhere. Both are off in the middle of nowhere. You have a very Massachusetts pedigree. Yeah, I live in a town that has like more golden retrievers than it does human beings. That's what it feels like when you walk around. But it's, it was a lovely place to grow up. My town seems very high on caucus, cockadoodles. <laughs> That's what I mean. <laughs> I don't know why. That seems to be the, the dog of choice right now. Did living in France have anything to do with 
thinking, oh, people deserve to have <laughs> the fresh food. <laughs> you know what? I was always struck by in France, and this it and it does connect. It's a an, an interesting connection to family dinner, in that in European countries as many of us know, you go and get your bread in one place, and your meat in a second place, and you're very picky about where your fruits and your produce come from. It's not this stand, but this one in the outdoor market. And I always found that pickiness and specificity and almost obsession with food to be exciting. And it is lacking here in many ways, unless you are lucky enough to live near a farmer's market, or you have the time and energy to drive to a dozen different places to gather your goodies for dinner. I was desperately poor as a graduate student in France, so I didn't do a whole lot of the eating that I think Paris is very well known for. I did experience some of the whole joie de vivre around food, I guess. Wow. And as are you also one of your own customers now? Mm -hmm. Yes. The thing that I obsess about is the food that comes into family dinner. If we have a new mm -hmm. vendor, I want to go and spend time on their farm. I want to see how the animals were raised. I want to have conversations with the people who work there. Because back to this idea of a currency of trust, we're telling our customers that they're getting the best, the best local food, animals that are raised correctly, animals that are raised ethically. And I need to be able to guarantee that. I need to be able to see it. And I'm also really picky about the quality of the products that come in. I want to taste everything first. If it's a new bakery, if it's a new vendor, you know, I have to fall on my sword and go and eat all these things. But I... I think that our customers expect a certain kind of quality and I, I want to guarantee it to them. Have you ever had to fire a vendor because the product wasn't up to snuff? Yes. What was that like? Um, it wasn't pleasant. We really want to engage with folks in a way that is that's symbiotic, that's beneficial to everybody. But if there's a lack of quality or a lack in the way that things are being done, it can't continue. And so we have to find other folks. That's not the goal, and it's very rare, but it has happened because it has to. You have to protect the model and the thing that you've made. It's, it's our baby. Yeah, that's the quality of your food is, that's your credit. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, so you don't start a business like this. You have an idea like this. It doesn't cost you much money. And doing it for six friends doesn't cost you much money. Mm -hmm. But as soon as you get to sort of 100, 200, you got to have refrigerated trucks and refrigerated spaces. How did you do all of that? How did you bootstrap it? So we did bootstrap it. We haven't taken on any outside money. Mm -hmm. We That's not true. We had a small loan from a bank to buy freezers. But we, I still own 100% of the company. I haven't given up any equity or any outside or any control. I think that gives us a lot of freedom. We've been very lucky to be able to do that. The interesting thing about a subscription platform is that money comes in every week and you're only mm -hmm. buying and only hiring people to meet that week's demand. So it allows us to be very fluid with the spending at the same time being very tight with the spending. But you're right. As you grow, more expenses come. When we started the company, we were running it out of our apartment in Somerville. The kale would come in and the, there's kale everywhere. It's Saturday morning. We're jamming stuff in a bag. And then after a certain point, we had to go to a shared kitchen facility. And that was really wonderful because it allowed you to continue to test the model with very little financial risk, right? You pay a certain monthly fee and you use the space, et cetera. And as you need more and more space, you pay a greater and greater monthly fee. When the pandemic hit, we exploded. We went from doing... 300 deliveries a week, 330 deliveries a week to over 700. And that changed in 10 days. 
It was wild. And so we were bursting at the seams. We couldn't be in the shared kitchen facility any longer. We needed our own space. So we got an industrial facility in Woburn. We built it out exactly the way we wanted. We have huge coolers, huge refrigerators, and we have set it up kind of to our specifications. And it's a, it's a wonderful misfit group of people that come in on Saturday mornings and we listen to bad, loud music and we pack shares. And it's, it's actually a lot of fun. I bet it's a lot of fun. What's maximum capacity for you? I think about this question a lot. So on any given packing day, on a busy packing day, we're doing about 300 shares in and out. And we do that twice a week. I think that we could easily do 500 a day and we could spread it to the point that we're delivering five days a week or mm -hmm. six. So I think that there's a lot of room to grow there. I think that the model is entirely scalable. So all of the systems that we've already created, everything that we do could just get larger and larger if we wanted it to. And so I think that that growth we would be very welcome to. And I think that our farmers would be able to absorb that growth and continue to provide us with the best quality things that they can. That brings us to a point during the pandemic when we hit 700 folks, we had to put a wait list in effect. And that wait list had 900 names on it, which as a business owner is wild. 900 potential customers that you have to say, I'm sorry, we can't to. But we weren't able to guarantee the same quality we weren't able to deliver the product that we wanted to in the way that we wanted to do it. So we had to turn them away. Hmm. And at one point during very early in the pandemic, it was so hard. People just didn't know what was happening and we didn't know what we were risking. Told somebody this recently, I would wake up and I am not a crier, but I would wake up every morning at five, put my overalls on, sit on my front steps and cry. Cause I just didn't, I didn't know. I was so scared of what we were risking for our team for our families. And so I shut the business down for three weeks. Wow. And it was almost financially ruinous. It almost sent us under, but I didn't know what else to do. We made the decision to do this based on the data that we had on hand at the time. It was really tough. What was the data that said to you, we can't do this, we have to regroup and shut down? I suppose the better way to put it, it was the lack of data. People didn't mm -hmm. know early how COVID was transferred is that people mm -hmm. were bleaching boxes of Cheerios outside their house. Right. We're leaving their groceries outside. And we've got these folks working for us coming in, not knowing, is there COVID on these wax boxes from the farm? Can we transfer COVID by touching the stainless steel table that we consistently, constantly clean and sanitize like lunatics? And we were not, it's an exaggeration to say that we were in hazmat suits, but we were covered. Gloves, masks, face shields to do very physical labor. And then I'm wondering, like, if I'm doing this work, what am I risking for my mother? It was awful. And it's the only thing I could think of doing. Hmm. But at the time, we had my favorite customer. I'm not supposed to have favorites, but I have a favorite customer. She's 102 years old. Her name is Janet Brown. Uh, she is absolutely wonderful. She shout is, out to Janet. Shout out to Janet. <laughs> Janet lives independently. She makes all of her own food. Her favorite dish is ratatouille. I've had it. It's delicious. But during that time, it was like, and I'm even thinking, well, how am I going to get Janet groceries? And what happens if I get Janet sick? So it's all these, you're screaming in your head and you just don't know which way to go. And that was the only thing I could think to do. And it almost ruined the company. Huh. But it didn't. It didn't. Amazing. And 
did your husband stay with the company or has he is he doing something that is reliably non-seasonal? <laughs> I will say two things. I've always paid myself a salary because this mm-hmm. is my full-time job. We do it. We work 51 weeks out of the year. We always take Thanksgiving off to give the team a break. That is the only week that we don't deliver. You have to hustle a little bit harder in winter to find interesting products. So you're not just like mm-hmm. pummeling people with kohlrabi, for example. Mm-hmm. But this is my, my full-time job year-round. My husband was working for the company part-time and is now full-time doing other work. But I still mm-hmm. nag them to do deliveries every once in a while when we're really in trouble. And I'm just curious, what is the hardest food to source and make people happy. Mm. It's so interesting. When you have 900 active customers and you survey them, you'll have three people that say that bluefish is the most delicious fish they've ever tasted. And three people that say that bluefish is revolting and they never want to see it again. Same thing with beets or mushrooms or whatever. So as you survey people, it's tough because some people love it and some people just don't, which is why we really want to be flexible in our model and allow people to say, These are the things I can't eat. These are the things I have aversions to. Beets are disgusting. Never bring them to me. We want people to have, because we don't want, the worst thing would be that food shows up and you don't like it and you throw it away. That's entirely against the mission. It's not good for you financially. It's not good for us. It's not good for the planet. It's totally against the point. So we try to be as flexible as possible. And when something is cool and new and super seasonal, think ramps, scapes, fiddleheads, stuff like that, we do want to get them into people's shares. And we want to definitely highlight, this is this weird little product. This is this weird little thing, but it's delicious. Here's how to cook it. Here's how to turn it into a butter or a vinegar or something if you're not going to use all of it right now. So we try to communicate with our customers around the product as much as we can to introduce them to cool new things, but also give them reliable things that they're going to enjoy. I have always believed that fiddleheads are a con. (laughs) They taste bitter, they're stringy, and I don't get it. And I would be the difficult customer because I hate the idea of tongue. And bluefish, I only have one good recipe for bluefish, and it uses a lot of Dijon mustard. Mine, mine so. involves mustard, too. Yeah, <laughs> mine involves mustard. But what we, what's very important to us is that every week we try to find something different, right? We don't want you just to be getting the same six things over and over again, which is in some ways a complication to a traditional CSA model. When you're locked into working with one farm, you get what you get. Here, we're trying to work with a huge network of different farms. Some are greenhouses. Some are focusing uniquely on fruits or produce or unique produce. We're trying to find a broad, diverse kind of cornucopia of things to bring to you every week so that it keeps it exciting. I get that. I had to opt out of a CSA because there was just Way too much kale yeah. every week. Yeah. Way too much it's kale. It's a lot. Yeah. And we try not to do that to folks. <laughs> I just, you are such an accomplished person. You have an incredible education, incredible experience. Does this fulfill you? I'm an incredibly competitive person. And so I love the idea. I love what we're doing. I love the mission. And every packing day that we're in there with the team, fills me up. It like fills the tank up. I'm not going to say that like running payroll and doing taxes and buying paper towels, like makes me feel joyful. Not all the parts of running a business are shiny and joyful, but when all the beautiful stuff comes in and the team is in there and the music's on and the doors are open and people are having fun and you see this gorgeous stuff going out to folks, that really does excite me. 
And the competitive part comes in because it's this tiny little idea written on the back of napkins, covered in buffalo sauce or whatever. As I said, people told us we were nuts. Like, I'm sorry, what? You're leaving a job at one of the top data science labs in the world to drive lettuce around? What are you doing with your life? And so I like proving that it can work. I like proving that it can be successful. And I'm really, if I if I flip the question a little bit and think about what I'm proudest about, it's that after that dip, after the company almost failed during COVID because we had to close, when we reopened and we were doing very well, we committed ourselves to donating $3,000 a month to fight in food insecurity. That's not a lot. We're a small company. But what we were able to do at that time was support two types of folks, the first of which are folks facing food insecurity. And the second were people whose businesses were suffering due to loss of things like wholesale accounts with restaurants. So what we would do is, let's say buy 500 loaves of bread from a local bakery who had lost their wholesale accounts at retail, we would pay retail prices for it, and then spin around and directly donate that to the Chelsea Collaborative. We did the same thing with meats and produce for years. And that's the thing that I'm truly proudest of is the effect that one small business can ripple out and businesses then connect with each other and create this network that kind of lifts the whole thing up, right? Being one little boat <laughs> and, and the tide is rising for everyone. That's the stuff that I think is empowering. And I'm not unique. This business isn't unique. As you look at any local business, they're all doing, really trying to do the good work. And that to me is feels like success. And that to me uh, fills my cup up and makes me happy. Erin, this is so great. <laughs> if people want to know more, how do they find out? Sure. So our website is familydinner.com. We are on social media at Share Family Dinner. So that's not for Instagram and Facebook. And I also just love to hear from people. All the emails through the website come to me. I read them all. Sometimes my mom responds. Sometimes it's me. But I love to hear what people think. And so uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to share what we're doing. It makes me very happy and I'm really grateful for it. So thank you. Well, I love you much. This has been great. Thank this you. This is wonderful. Thank you again. I really appreciate the opportunity. You're so welcome. You're so welcome. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thank you, Erin. In addition to Erin Baumgartner's social media and website, you might want to check out her TED Talk. It's pretty good. Thanks for listening. Let's Talk About Food is produced by The Food Voice. I'm producing, along with audio director and composer Mike Moss of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at our website, letstalkaboutfood.com, and on Heritage Radio or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.